Welcome to Season 4 of The Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom, where we discuss business agility through customer experience, employee experience, and digital transformation. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom. The Agile World Podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full-stack technology services, talent services, and real-world application. For more information, go to techsystems.com. To read more about the topics discussed on this show, you can go to my website at gregkilstrom.com and read my latest articles or get a copy of my latest book, Meaningful Measurement of the Customer Experience, now available on Amazon and other retailers. My name is Greg Kilstrom, and I'm the host of the Agile Brand Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about experience design from a systems perspective and what creates a healthy organizational culture. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Gary David, Professor of Sociology, Information Design, and Corporate Communication at Bentley University. Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, looking forward to talking about this uh, with you. So why don't we start by you giving a little background on yourself as well as what you're currently doing. Sounds good. Uh, and it's it's been a weird journey into this space. I got my PhD in Detroit, Michigan back in 1999. And during that time, I was doing my dissertation work on intercultural communication between Arab liquor store owners and their customers. And this is at the time just after Rodney King verdict. And there was a lot of turmoil around immigrant-owned businesses in primarily African-American communities. And so I wanted to focus in on this niche market of liquor store ownership that was primarily owned by people from Iraq, and primarily this group called Chaldeans. And I was studying service encounters. I was looking at interaction across the counter and how people were able to form relationships in what was regarded as being highly contentious environments. And I you know, I didn't think much of it other than this was a really important topic around you know, intergroup relations and there was a lot of attention on it, but this idea of customer experience didn't exist. And I never connected it to customer experience until I attended a CXPA coffee session in Boston, Massachusetts. We have a great CXPA group. And I was describing to them what my research had been. And they were like, oh my God, that's like customer experience. I'm like, oh, oh my God, you're right. <laughs> but we didn't, I didn't have the terminology for it. We just called it service encounters. And so I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be working at a business school, Bentley University, that really does prioritize applied work. And so it's, they look for not just academic publications, but also business engagement. And my opportunities to engage with businesses, either as a professional speaker or as a consultant or as a trainer, allows me to exercise what I do in the classroom and what I've done through my research into environments that I think can actually make a difference. That's great. Yeah. And it's, it's always interesting to hear how people get into customer experience. I mean, you know, there's a lot of folks that come in from customer service or and stuff like that. But for those of us that hadn't, I think, you know, it's, it's always fascinating to me. I mean, there's a lot of folks like myself that I kind of came into it through marketing, right? Um, which is one common way, but that's, that's really interesting. Your, your, your story there and, and, and how that kind of got you into, into something that, you know, just, it needed a name, in other words. Right. And one of the things about customer experience or any kind of experience design that I often harp on, especially with my students when I do consulting work, is you know, it's this formulation of perceptions of interactions. I mean, if you want to break it down. A lot of work, I mean, I know you talk a lot about measurement, is looking at the perception. Less work is focused on the interaction. I'm a conversation analyst. I study interactions. I can study perceptions too, but my focus is always on what's taking place between people engaging in context and how that situates in a broader institutional setting. 
right? So we talk about systems perspective. It's always looking at what are people doing together? What are people doing with technology? I teach in a UX program. So looking at interactions with technology is a big part of this. So it's, I focus on the interactional aspect of the customer experience or patient experience or student experience approach rather than the perceptional focus that a lot of experience design work tends to emphasize. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, let's let's get into it here and start by talking about experience and, and relationship between customer and then employee experience, which we haven't quite touched on yet. But you know, how would you define this relationship between that customer and the employee experience? There's a really nice book that I, it's older book now, but that I reference quite a bit and it's called The Customer Comes Second. And, you know, I I just did a talk on how to identify employee gifts and and capabilities. And I referenced this book and one of the responses and the feedback was from an attendee who was very uncomfortable with this formulation of the customer coming second, because we're always taught the customer comes first. But in reality, your employees need to be your first customer. And if your employees aren't not just happy or engaged, but if you're not designing experiences with your employees in mind, the customer experience is going to suffer, okay? And so if you focus on the employee experience first, the customer experience can benefit from that focus. And so they're they're really closely connected. And companies, this and this goes back into the systems framework, right? That companies often treat experiences as siloed. User experience is separate from customer experience, is separate from employee experience, from digital, from brand, from et cetera. I focused on what I call integrated experience design or how to align these experience channels in a strategic way so that they're not working against each other. And especially around employee and customer, you really got to focus on this employee experience to allow the customer experience to take off, right? But if it doesn't start with the employees, you're going to have a harder time moving the customer experience. Yeah. So can you have a good customer experience without good employee experience? I guess it depends on how you define good, right? I <laughs> yeah. mean, it's is it good enough? Is it good enough to keep them coming back? You know, so there's a lot of variables involved there. And, you know, one of the frustrating things about talking to a sociologist is a number of times we say it depends. Right. And I, 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 t- I tell my students, you know, every time I say it depends, drink. <laughs> and then by the time you're either going to be very well hydrated or very intoxicated. <laughs> right, right. Upon what Consultants do that too for what it's worth. Uh, right? It depends. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, it depends. It depends how much you pay me right now. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, only a little bit. So, you know, it really does depend on what and what's good enough and good versus great. And is good enough good enough? I mean, you might be good enough, but is it going to be great? And is it going to be a key differentiator between you and your competitors and going to the Pine and Gilmore work about competing on the ground of experiences? You know, good enough might not be enough, especially as people up their game. And so it might be good enough for now, but it's not going to be good enough for tomorrow. And so companies need to be thinking strategically and proactively around what it means to be good enough and how to do better in that space, especially around the employee experience as a starting point. Yeah, and I think you saying t- the tomorrow aspect, I to me that's a key part there too. Is that you know I think you can probably get something really good for a very short period of time because you know everybody's trained and and everybody's at least somewhat motivated. But I think it's sustainability of right. customer experience that 
it just doesn't have, you know, if you have turnover because employees are, are disengaged or unmotivated, you're not going to have good customer experience. If your processes aren't good from the start, you're, it, again, you may have great customer experience one week or one month, but then, you know, it all kind of goes to hell after, after things kind of shake out. And I'm, I'm working on a book right now with the co-host of my other, like my podcast, Experience by Design. And the book is called Experience by Design. And we're writing a chapter on expectations. And I don't think expectations gets enough attention. And so it's hard to evaluate good enough without first considering what the expectations are. And one of the classic examples of this is something like, you know, Spirit or Ryanair, right? That my expectations might be low. And this is part of the expectation setting of the organization that they're like, you know, don't expect too much. Right. And one of my mottos is, or actually goes back to a song by, uh, I think it was Jajin Blossoms, uh, where the, the lyric goes, if you don't expect too much from me, you might not be let down. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so there's, there's, there's a lesson to be learned there, not that we should set a low bar, but that we, in, in terms of looking at perception of interactions, we also have to layer in their expectations. Right. And how do we build expectations into our experience design to let our customers know what they might expect and also understand what our customers expect and not just expect from our, ourselves or our competitors, but connected spaces. And so if I'm renewing my driver's license online or if I'm doing something online, I'm not just expecting what I expect from the government for my driver's license, but I know how good Amazon does it or I know how good someone else does it on an online space. My expectations were going to bleed over into this other engagement, into this other interactional experience space and influence what my takeaway is from that. And so it gets into this very complex kind of experience design environment that companies can often feel overwhelmed by. But I think part of our job as experienced designers is to help those companies translate that complexity into action and so that they don't feel overwhelmed by it, but they can actually approach it from a proactive standpoint. Yeah, and I think that's a good segue to, to my next question. Can you define, you know, you talk about experience design from a systems perspective. What, is that, what does that mean to you? Well, for me, as a sociologist, we're trained to think in systems. And so take, for example, user experience. And I've been teaching our UX program for, no, for a long time now. And we have a really great UX program at Bentley University. And often UX approaches the topic from what's called an HCI model or human-computer interaction. It's often cognitivistic and individualistic. We're testing how a person interacts with an interface. So the unit of analysis is the individual and their mental approach to it, to the interface, to the design, to the task, right? There's another approach. It's called the computer-supported cooperative work approach. And this came out of Scandinavia in the 1990s. And this looks at the embeddedness of technology in an organization. Anybody who's used a technology in an organization like an enterprise system knows that it's not just how you interact with the technology, but it's how you're interacting with the organization through the technology and how that technology might support or inhibit collaborative work and communication with other people in the organization. And so there's layers of considerations going on. So that's just like one example yeah. of a systems perspective. Another one, I was talking with a person in the patient experience space earlier today, and patient experience really doesn't capture the complexity of what healthcare institutions are trying to accomplish because it's not just patients. There are clinicians of various kinds. There are caregivers. There are insurance agencies. There are employers. There are government regulatory agencies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of those different 
players have a vested interest in this healthcare space. So really the patient experience is about a much larger healthcare experience. One of the things I get my students to do and when I consult, I get my clients to think about is elevating experiences. What's the, what's the experience ecosystem that you're operating in? So it's not just about the customer as a touch point, but it's in a broader environment that this thing is taking place in. And how do we kind of map that out and think about that complexity, think about that system so we understand the forces that are influencing and impacting what we're trying to achieve? That's great. Let's, let's switch gears a little bit here and talk about organizational culture and its evolution over time. Um, so there's healthy and unhealthy cultures, but in addition, there are also vastly different cultures from organization to organization that aren't necessarily good or bad, just different, right? right. So how can, how can a leader know the difference between healthy and unhealthy and just different? It's, it's, I mean, it's a really great question because I, there's not a clean answer to it, but I do think this is where, again, something like a sociology approach or an anthropological approach. I just came back from the Society for Applied Anthropology meetings that were in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I know both disciplines, sociology, anthropology, we study culture. This is what we do. We often do it from a, what we call an ethnographic perspective. So we're trying to under, understand the culture as a lived experience. And so it's hard to extract the lived experience of culture simply from a quantitative dashboard. Not that that can't be a piece of the puzzle in our understanding, but it, it doesn't provide us with all the answers of what that lived experience looks like. And so I think it's really important for any leader to get out from behind the corner office and to really have trusted, basically, uh, communication streams into their world. You know, just as a, as a segue here, as a different topic, one of the things with Russia and the Ukraine right now is that Vladimir Putin didn't have good information about the reality of the Ukraine because his advisors would only tell him things he wanted to hear. Right, right. Well, you're going to get into a lot of trouble, clearly, if that's the world in which you live. And so you really need to have those lines of communication that incorporate multiple data streams, qualitative and quantitative, in order to get the more multidimensional understanding of what that culture might look like and also all the different aspects of culture, you know, so whether it is uh, beliefs, whether it is practices, whether it is symbols, whether it is storytelling that's being done by people in the organization, et cetera. All of those things are part of culture and a good leader in their attempts to understand culture needs to have an understanding of what those things are in the organization. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then I guess to make it even more complex, there's sure. shifts over time too, right? So, you know, again, not only is culture not necessarily good or bad, but also a company may need a different kind of culture. You know, a startup that's six months old may need a different culture than sure. a 16-year-old company. So, you know, what, it, from your from your perspective, what are the things that maybe should shift in that older organization or over time? And what are, what are things that may be counted as losses if they disappear? I, yeah, it's funny. I, um, I, I wrote a blog at my um, consulting website, ethno-analytics.com. Anybody wants to see it? And it was on basically what I called reboarding. And you know, we talk about onboarding. We talk about offboarding. Well, what about reboarding? What about rekindling the fire that employees and organizations have for each other 10, 
five, 10, 15 years in. And I actually related it to a marriage. <laughs> and, you know, when, when a relationship is brand new, it's all exciting and engaging and you're infatuated with the whole thing. And then maybe at the very end, you just want it to be over. <laughs> you know? right, right. It's, there's another line from another song. We're just going to pull out song lyrics. What is by Amy Mann, what started out with such excitement would gladly end in, you know, with relief. Right. <laughs> so it's like, let's just get it done with. But, you know, before it gets to that point, how do you rekindle the engagement? And I think that not just for organizations that are 16 years old or older, but if you've been with an organization for a certain length of time, how do you reconnect with each other? And I don't think any, any attention or much attention is given to that. There's so much attention given to the newness and there's more attention being given to the end stage. But that middle part, there's a lot of opportunity there to re-engage, to not lose that excitement, to repurpose the relationship, to almost renew the organizational vows to each other so that you can identify what you still like about each other. And if, you, if what you liked before is no longer sustaining right? The newness, the excitement. How do we reinvigorate that? And so almost thinking about organizational relationship counselors yeah. <laughs> and thinking about, thinking about, you know, coming in with that, that kind of approach, you know, couples therapy between employees and organizations to try to think about what did we lose? How do we recapture that? And this is part of when I do this uh, inventory assets or accepting the gifts that employees bring to the workplace. That's part of that effort to really uh, appreciating what each other has to contribute to one another so that you can make that connection work once again. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so so along those lines, I mean, obviously we've we've talked a bit about, you know, things can shift. There's a lot of diversity within what works at one org may not work at another. How do you measure healthy culture then? You know, what what are the metrics that might go into determining that? I mean, there's a lot out there. Andy Simon, uh, who's a business anthropologist, wrote this great book, and I'm looking at my bookshelf because the name is escaping me right now. But uh, Andy Simon, A-N-D, I wrote a great book, and they talk about a survey from the University of Michigan that could be used for measuring, measuring organizational culture. I can't, the, the, the actual name of Oh, the, is that the competing values? It might be. Yeah. I can't recall. But there's a lot out there, yeah. right? And that's fine. I mean, I'm not, I design surveys. I, you know, I've done surveys. I'm not a big survey person because I think surveys can be indicators of something but they can also indicate just how people take surveys, right? right. <laughs> I mean, so it might just be an indicator of that. As I tell my students, crime statistics have nothing to do with how much crime is committed. It has everything to do with how police report crime. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a very different thing. I, I developed a class that, that was called Data, Context, and Information. And the, the point of it is to make data into information, you need to add context. And if you're just relying on a survey or this dashboard, you really have to understand the context in which that data is created. Not that it can't be useful, but on its own, it you should use it at, at your own peril or at your own risk. This is where developing multi-methodological or what we would call triangulating, using different data measurement touch points to develop a better understanding of what's going on in an organization. Yeah. One, for example, one of the, I was talking with this organization that was experiencing a lot of change because they were hiring a lot of people. And I asked, well, how many remember when stories are being told? And they're like, well, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, people who have been here for a while start saying, hey, remember when, you know, the organization just started and we were, it was like this. Remember when we used to be at that other place or remember when it was just like the 10 of us? And they're like, oh yeah, people talk about that all the time. And I said, are you capturing that? 
what are those stories about? Are they about you know how far we've come in a happy way? Are they talking about it in a way that's like, remember how when things were so much better? Right. <laughs> and how can you capture that to basically socialize the new people into the culture that you're trying to create? So even something like narrative can be a really important metric if you, you know how to analyze it. Yeah. And part of what I teach and when I do consulting work, I do it on my own is analyzing the qualitative data you have all around you, but you don't know how to leverage. And that can be really valuable information because people might share it just unconsciously. It's just out there in the cultural space and the organizations don't know how to capture it, analyze it, and then turn it into actionable information to then build healthier cultures around. Yeah, yeah. No, this is this is great stuff. Well, one last question before we wrap up here. Um, as a professor at Bentley University for a little over two decades now, I know, right? God, that makes me sound old. <laughs> I know. Jeez, that- we say it that way. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> sorry, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> but you know, how is your teaching of experience design and the similar subject matter shifted over the last, you know, let's even say five to ten years? And you know, what do you what do you see continuing to evolve there? It's, you know, sometimes I think about this question with a lot of regret. And so this, this question should come with a trigger warning. I, I, I've been teaching a class on ethnography for experience design for about 15, 16 years now. Mm-hmm. And when I think about how I first taught it, I really want to go back to those students, apologize and give them their money back. Because <laughs> I'm like, it, it's, I, I like to think that it's definitely improved because my, because the space has evolved. Number one, I, I was looking at an organization like the, um, the Barrel Institute, which is famous around PX. And I was chatting with someone from there earlier and they were like 12 years ago, we were barely a thing. And now it's matured to such a high extent in 12 years. You look at Customer Experience Professionals Association, the same thing. Yeah. You look at a term like employee experience, the same thing. So you've seen this, you know, this huge growth in the experience industry for lack of a better word. So now that it's like a mad libs noun plus experience. So it's everything experience. And so there's a lot more to talk about. But I think at at the end of the day, from a social science perspective, there's still fundamentals that haven't changed. Experience and experience design is still made up of things like what is an experience? There's about 3000 years of philosophy on this topic. You know, what are our perceptions? How do those form? How do expectations form? What are interactions? How do we form memories? How do we develop belonging? How do we measure our experience with the world? I mean, from a philosophical perspective, that's just empiricism. Okay, so part of what I try to do is connect some of those longstanding topics of measurement, experience, expectation, interaction, perception, memory, belonging. How do we link ethics? How do we link that with contemporary conversations of experience design so that when we're making recommendations for change and when we're teaching this topic in the classroom, we're embedding it in some kind of scientific or academic foundation. So we're, we're moving on a ground that's a little bit more firm than just the flavor of the day. And maybe that flavor of the day has some academic, philosophical, social science underpinning, if we could connect those two together, we can maybe be more confident in devoting resources in that kind of direction. So on the one hand, my teaching has changed a lot. On the other hand, some of those foundational principles aren't going to change. And understanding those foundational principles and what makes them happen is going to be very important 
to students of any age and professionals and organizations of any maturity, it's going to help them move forward and experience design with much more confidence. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that sounds like a great approach. Well, uh, Gary, thanks so much for joining the show. Uh, for those listening, what's the best way for people to keep up with what you're doing? Uh, too many things, but there's a few of them. I'm all over the map a little bit, but it's all coming together, right? Brand synergies. Is that, is that, is that what right, we're talking right. about here from a writing perspective? Yeah, yeah. So if anybody wants to hear more about what we do over at Experience by Design, you can go to experiencexdesign.com or catch that podcast wherever you get podcasts. I also do professional speaking. You can find me at garyconnects, with an S, dot com. And if you're interested in knowing more about my consulting work, you can go to ethno-analytics.com and see white papers, see blogs, and see other information on my approach. Wonderful. Well, again, I'd like to thank Gary David, Professor of Sociology, Information Design, and Corporate Communication at Bentley University for joining the show. Thanks for listening to The Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom. Talk with you next week. Thanks again for listening to The Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom podcast, brought to you by Tech Systems. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can access more episodes of the show at www.theagilebrand.show. To get a copy of my latest book, Meaningful Measurement of the Customer Experience, visit my website at gregkillstrom.com. Until next week, stay agile.